Word right now. As you guys know, we are studying Galatians. Um, if you if you have you know been reading Galatians and, and you want to even uh, get more excited, even what else we're going to be doing, just to let you guys know, we we started with John. We're hitting Galatians right now. We're in chapter three. Going to be entering in chapter uh, the, the, if finishing chapter three and hitting chapter four. Just letting you guys know that actually after Galatians, we're going to be doing Advent. Uh, have a great time with Advent together. And then we're going to hit Genesis. So, uh, so the book of Genesis, we'll be hitting Genesis. And as you guys know, it's a really big book. So we'll be spending a lot of time in Genesis together uh, just to help you guys. If you want to get ahead of the game and start reading, uh, there's your homework. Uh, now, Galatians 3. Uh, again, if you need pens or pencils, raise your hand as well. And Bibles. The verses will be on the screen. Um, but they'll be popping on and off, so we would love for you to um, build a, build the muscle about bringing your word. Let me start off by Galatians um, is an interesting book. Um, you know, as you're reading the scriptures, uh, there's different there's different there's different aspects of what the Lord is trying to teach us. You know, there's some books that are that really talk to you about like what does it look like for you what are you like uh, what's our response to what the lord is doing uh what 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 does it look like for us to walk with the lord uh there's books that that help you understand uh what the gospel is you know and talks about other aspects but really the focus is what the gospel is uh galatians if you notice is an interesting book because it's, it's focusing in a lot on what the gospel is not um, as you're reading, it's continually helping us understand what is not the gospel. Like, what, if you're hearing this stuff, then there's something wrong. You probably should leave that place uh, running and screaming. So, um, and one of the main things is this this continual sense of of this battle between faith and works. Uh, so there's this, this this dialogue that Paul is having with us, trying to help us understand uh, in in all kind of different vernacular of what does it mean to be a man and woman of faith. Uh, versus a man or woman who thinks that they um, are, are receiving favor from God or even experiencing sonship from God uh, based on what they do, okay, which is not the gospel at all. So the whole framework of the book has been this issue of, of understanding what is faith and what is grace. Now, we, we finished um, up to verse 14 last week. And then what I'm going to do, and you're going to kill me, um, I'm going to actually go to verse 21. The reason why I'm starting in ver- actually verse 19, the reason why I'm skipping verses 15 through 18 is, well, if I'm going to be honest, is because I'm behind. But secondly, um, but secondly is because we actually taught those verses last week, if you remember. Why do I say that? I'm going to read them real quick, and I'm going to see if, you, if it clicks for you guys. Verse 15, brothers, let me take an example for everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Um, Skip down, uh, he talks about the seeds, and then verse 17 says, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus uh, do away with the promise. Remember we talked about that? That's what I was. That's what I discussed it when I talked about Genesis, and I shared how Abraham was not a Jew, uh, he was not under the law, and he was not circumcised. That's what he's talking about right here, basically, right? He says, "How can those things uh, set aside the promise? For if the inheritance depends on the law, the inheritance what? The inheritance, the inheritance that Abraham received, right? For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it's no longer depends on the promise. But God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham." Through a promise. 
All right? So that so 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 don't think I'm gonna be I'm being unfaithful. Actually, we did teach on that. I just didn't talk. We didn't go through the verses. So just to remind you, uh, Abraham was not could not have been a Jew. Why? Thank you. Israel was generations later. Abraham was circumcised when? About 14 or so years after the promise, right? Right? And so, and he couldn't have been part of Israel. Why? Because he wasn't born yet. Cool. So we can move on. All right. You guys are awesome. Okay. Um, again, we ask questions. So uh, it's not a faux pas if you have questions right now. We really want to be dialoguing with the text. That's our goal here. Uh, at the same time, uh, be considerate about the questions you're asking to make sure that they can bless the whole covenant community. If there's something specific, we can talk after a service or somebody in the body because all of our people are, are tight. So, uh, verse, so we're going to start in verse 19. What then was the purpose of, of the law, he says. And this is why we always encourage us uh, when we do series, to, you know, you come in on verse on chapter 3, in the middle of chapter 3, you're looking kind of serious because we've been going for a little bit. So um, you're, you're almost coming in on a, like a, a moving locomo- locomotive. So we want to ask you guys to be gracious as you're, if you're new here, uh, we're jumping right in and hopefully um, things will make sense in a moment. Uh, he says, what then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. In verse 20, a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is uh, one. So, so Paul has just, you know, this very serious tone letter. He's made very clear that what you guys are doing, you adding to this issue of faith, telling these, telling these uh, Gentiles that they need to be circumcised and they, t- they need to be like Jews in order to have God's favor is not the gospel. Right. He's very serious about that. And he gives these different uh, points of, of proof of why it is simply ridiculous to make works an issue as you think about walking with God, as you think about having a relationship with God, to make anything that you do, anything that you think you've merited, part of like the reason why you should be a child of God is simply ridiculous. He provides this example of Abraham, who's the most amazing patriarch of Judaism. Right? He is uh, the father. And he shows them that even Abraham himself, uh, those, those who all look at Abraham as a, the, 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 the apex patriarch, says he also received the sonship by the promise. And then he continues on in verse 19 to help us now understand the law. He sort of turns the picture and says, so let's look at the law. Okay? So Abraham, first of all, he wasn't even about the law. He was about the promise. But now, even if we talk about the law, the law doesn't even hold up. The law doesn't even cut it. So even if Abraham wanted to be a man under the law, um, let's, let's look at how, how inferior the law is. Let's look at a couple words. It says, it says um, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions, the law. So what is the purpose of it? It says it was added because of trans- transgressions until the seed to whom. So first thing, the law, what it does... Can you click real quick? Uh, it's called, it's, it's desires to multiply, even stimulate transgressions. Um, continue on. Confines all in the prison house of sin. So it says here uh, that the law was added because of transgressions until the seed. So it shows that it's not even, um, it's not even valid. Uh, there's no long-term validity of the law. So it says the law was here for a certain time. So the first reason why the law is inferior is that it's not even long-lasting. Um, so 
with the goal of it was to multiply transgressions we talked about last week. So how do you, how do you multiply transgressions? So people are doing something. If you are in, in America, the age to drink in America is, is when? 21, right? Okay. Now, so that means as a Christian, we are wrong if we drink when we're 19. Why? Okay. You go to Canada, when, what's the drinking age? The drinking age is eight. Is it eight? Who's eight? Yeah. Oh, uh, you was tripping, Carrie. So you was a little early in Canada. But we ain't going to tell nobody. She's like, it was 18. No, baby, you repent later. But, but the 19, Carrie. All right, so, so the drinking age is 19. So, that means, so that, means, that means you can't drink in America at 19, but in Canada, all of a sudden, you can drink. So what's the difference? The law. Right. So the law actually provides, like reveals to you if you're breaking, if you're doing something wrong. Right. So you can you can speed like you can drive as fast as you want to until there's a speed limit. As soon as someone says, if you go 30, you're now doing something wrong. That in itself is what makes it wrong. Do you follow me? And so in the same way, what happened was you had people sinning. But then God said, now, your heart, you know you're doing something wrong. We've done this. You know you're doing something wrong, but you're like, well, I don't see no law, so I'm cool. So God knows how foul we are. He says, what I'll do is let me bring the law to just validate that you foul. Right? In the layman's term, that's what the law does. It says, like, all that stuff you really thought was wrong, yep, it's wrong. And so the law is, you know, you got the Ten Commandments and it's 611 or 13 ordinances, depending on... You know, your history, you have these ordinances, and what they do is that they, they, they multiply or stimulate transgressions because now the things that weren't wrong are wrong, which means you add more sin. That makes sense? If you don't, if you're not, so if you're not, you don't, so if I'm, I'm trying to explain this another way. I think, I think you guys get what I'm saying. So basically, I'm not sinning because there's no statute. As soon as there's a statute I'm sinning, that means that sin has been added. Okay? Okay, so, also, it can find all in the prison house. So, what the law does, and I love this picture that Jesus gives, is that he, is the law puts us all in this big vat, this spiritual graveyard, with one door to it. Right? It makes us all roam around and says we're all under this, these statutes and we're all continually failing. We're all continually realizing that it's not something external, but it's something in me that's making me do all this stuff. So it must be me, and it makes us all go, so how do I get out of this? So basically what the law does, it's like a prison house. And so if you don't know Jesus right now, you are still in this prison house, and you're just validating that you are needy. Right? So that's what it does. So we'll explain, like, what happens in a prison house in a moment. But those are the, uh, the big two things that the law, the purpose of the law. Now, let's continue on, please. Now, it talks about in, in uh, this whole issue of angelic administration. Uh, which is kind of weird, but what I, all I can say about this, when you go down to the end of, chapter, of verse 19, it says the law was put into effect through, an, through an, angels by a mediator. Um, we know in Acts 7, I think with Stephen, he talks about this mediator. So there's this sense that the law was given by angels. Okay, why does he talk about this? People want to get off in all these points. It seems that the main reason in this text, the reason why this is talked about, is because he wants to make the fact that, okay, the law isn't valid because it's not long-lasting, which, by the way, I love grace because if you notice, it says the law was put into effect, which means he, he, he took something and made the law, whereas grace has always been. Uh, 
which again shows you the inferiority piece. So the law is not valid because it has to end because there's something else that is valid, faith, which has always been, right? It's not, like, it's not simply that the law was here and then faith came. It's always been faith, and faith was a prison house that was supposed to lead you to the one door, which, I'm sorry, the law is a prison house that was to lead you to the one door, which is faith. Okay? So faith has always been, and the whole point of the law is to lead you to it, to realize, well, there's nothing I can do, but if I believe, and to be freed out of the prison house of sin and being under the shackles of the law. Um, now, so you have the lack of validity piece is not valid, but also here you have the sense of the mediator, uh, this angelic person given the law, which shows again its inferiority to the promise, because who gave the promise? God, right? No mediator. There is no one who he handed it off to. But basically, his point here, and, and you guys go, why, where do you get that? Well, look what he says here. That's why his whole point here is in verse 20. He says, a meteor, however, does not depend on just one party, but God is one. His point is that the law was given through somebody, that Jesus, and the Father, gave the law to these angels. And then the angels, what the angels do? Who is the mediator? Moses, right? Well, so you have the mediator piece, God being one going, the law, you know, I didn't, I didn't give the law. We actually gave it through these angels. I gave the promise directly from me. Faith always comes from me, but the law was put here, not valid fully because it's going to fade away. Faith has always been. Uh, We finally also have this issue of mediator. Moses, to have a mediator, you have to have two parties, okay? So when you have a mediator, usually there's a contract, and you have one party who's here, which is like the people of Israel, and you have sort of God, and with a contract like that, usually both parties have to do something in order to make the contract valid. Different with the promise, the promise is unilateral, and only one person makes sure that the promise happens. You see that? See, that's the beauty. When you go to, uh, I believe it's uh, Genesis 15, notice the beauty of the promise is that when you have, uh, there's this big sacrifice that happens in Genesis, and its whole point of the sacrifice is usually when you do the sacrificial system, usually there's a contract of two parties. But actually, uh, they cut this animal in half, uh, which, which signifies the sacrifice, and we're going to talk about this when we get to Genesis, and in this fire, the father goes through the sacrifice. The whole point of that was to say, if you don't keep the law, if you don't, if you don't keep your part of the bargain, humans, then guess who dies? The person who went through the fire. And if God doesn't keep the law or keep this, what, we, what we decided is a covenant, guess who dies? Who went through the fire? Who went through the, uh, the two pieces of, of the body, of the, of the animal? My point being is that even the promise is unilateral. God is saying, if he messes up, he pays for it, and if we mess up, he pays for it. So the promise is unilateral. This is very important, family, because he's trying to make a point to show us how inferior the law is to the promise in verses uh, 19 and 20. Let's go on, please. So why then the law continue on? It just doesn't cut it. Just go all the way down. So it has a negative function. The law is just basically negative. Uh, that basically is here to expose our sin. Uh, it's not valid because it doesn't, it's not long-term. Eventually it fails, and that's why the promise uh, basically over, or overshadows it. It's proclaimed through angels, which the promise is only proclaimed through the Father, and it's communicated by the agency of an intermediary, and that is Moses, whereas the promise is unilateral. Uh, I know that's a lot. 
but that's his point. So, uh, so, so when he said, so, and I'm going to give you a couple of key words that you can, you can circle in your Bible. What then was the purpose of the law? He says, until, I would circle until, the seed to whom the promise referred had come, the law was put into an effect, angels and by a mediator. And he says a mediator, however, does not represent just one party. His point is there was two parties, but God is one. But when God did the promise, he's one. There was no mediator because he uh, had a unilateral contract. So Paul just tries to make it really clear, and I love this because he's talking to these very astute Jews, and he's really trying to break down what they put all their focus and their faith in for all these years, and that is their Judaism. And he's saying, guess what? Abraham never did it. It was always about the promise, but even if it was about the law, look how inferior the law is to the promise. It doesn't stack up in every way from the reason why it was brought up, it was negative, to what it was pointing to, was faith, not to itself. It was brought through a mediator, and it's bilateral versus unilateral. You're paying for it, or I'm paying for it, where God says, well, let me make a promise, and I'll pay for both. He continues on and says, is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? So, now notice something. Just because it's inferior, it's not opposed. So, I love when he says that because you think of the way he says that you're going to go, yeah, but he's like, psych, absolutely not. Right? And he says, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Right? If it could get life, it would come by the law. But it says in verse 22, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. You see that, that sense again, that prison? Prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ might be given to those who believe. So, so, he, so, it's, so it's not opposed, right? The, the law is not opposed to the promise. It's just inferior. Do you see that? So it does, it does what it's supposed to do. So God made the law. So it's not a bad thing. It just doesn't cut it. And so we get to make sure we understand what the law does. The law uh, was good in what it was supposed to do, and that was to lead us to faith. And so what he's trying to encourage the Jews in is that, guys, the law, the whole point of the law was so that you wouldn't be having these arguments, but so that you would be trusting and believing the gospel by faith. That the law should be humbling you and me in such a way where we realize there's absolutely nothing we bring to the table that it makes us run to the gospel. It makes us run to Jesus. That's the point of the law. It is not opposed to the promise. It's simply inferior. Continues on. So let me just, just for, again, if you want to circle some words there, verse 21, uh, in my Bible, I, I, I looked at opposed and really wanted to do some research there. Uh, this whole sense of prisoner of sin, where we'll talk about in a moment, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those um, who believe. So verse 23, he says, Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge. You might want to circle that. Put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. 
Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. This is a great picture, guys. So he breaks down and shows how inferior the law is, but then he encourages us, but the law did what it was supposed to do. That was it was supposed to point us to the Savior. Then he helps us see exactly what was the point when he talks about what was the law to do, the sense of put in charge. It's um, it's almost the word literally custodian. Uh, custodian. Uh, you hear uh, like pedagogy. Uh, uh, it's like the sense of a teacher. It's almost like a, uh, what would happen in a Roman days family. And notice he's saying the law is sort of like this, this school teacher. So you would have a, a person be born. And right when the person's born, uh, they would have individuals who would take care of the kids. Uh, well-off individuals. And so and this person was to make sure uh, that this person uh, had good manners, uh, that they were raised in the right way, uh, that they went to school, um, that they learned, they learned a way of uh, this Roman culture. They were to lead them uh, until they were of maturity, uh, until they were of maturity to sort of make their own decisions, and then they would free them uh, to be able to go out into the world. Uh, he's saying basically, and, and, and don't miss this family, because one of the major, I love what the scriptures are teaching here, and that is this issue of true maturity in Christ is when you are a man and woman of faith. Because he's using, he's using an example here of saying when you are relying on your works, what you do, what you bring to the table, right here he's talking to these Jewish people, and he's saying when you and I are relying, he's saying when you're relying on circumcision and the law, and you think that justifies you in the Lord, he's saying you're basically immature. You're, you're, you're still being brought up. You're still a schoolboy. And you're still wandering around, and he's saying, but, 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 but hopefully just like the individuals when in verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. But when you are experiencing faith, when you're living a life of faith, no longer are you experiencing this supervision, are you experiencing this principle, this person who is continually teaching you how to be a man or a woman, because now you are, because you've been freed. We're going to get to verse 7, so that's why I'm... So any questions so far? So it's the sense of this, this sense of freedom just under the supervision of the law that we don't experience anymore, just issues of, of, of shackles. Continue on, please. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, what I want you to do, he's going to, he's going to bring up this issue again, this issue of being clothed with Christ. So you might want to underline that. And uh, we're going to eventually draw um, a little line down. So he said, because of all that, because of that reality, because the law is inferior, because God has called us to put our hope and our trust in Jesus alone, because we see the inferior to the law, we understand what it was, what it was here for, and it's done its purpose. So now it is done because it's done what it's supposed to do. So now we live a life of faith. He's saying, guess what? Schoolboys still live this way. But men and women of faith live this way. So he's now encouraging us in verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with him. Um, so here's the question I'm going to ask you. He's, he's almost saying, like, what do we do? Do we, do we begin our walks like, by, loving, by loving Jesus um, or, or by being Jewish? Do we, do, we, do we begin our walks? Well, we begin our walks by loving Jesus, right? So you're saying, well, how do you continue to walk? By loving Jesus or being Jewish. That's the whole tenor of all this. 
I want to continue to remind us what he's saying to these Jewish people. He's saying, guys, it's always been faith. It's faith. Very famous verse. I'm going to have to unpack this a little bit, so um, bear with me. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All right. Um, Very famous verse here, guys. Can you continue on, please? All right. I just want to deal with this one issue real quick because we talk about it a lot, um, you know, around in different circles. He talks about, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Why does he say this right in this verse here? Um, A lot of times, people use this verse and want to use this as a sense of like, so this is where, you know, we, like man and and, and woman, we're just free and we're all the same. We can do whatever we want. And, and then you got people arguing over should it be women pastors and all this stuff, right? That's what the issue that we get that a lot with this verse here. So I just want to unpack some stuff real quick. The real question you got to ask yourself, we're not going to get into the specifics, but I need to unpack this to make sure um, we're on the same page biblically. And that's the question that you really need to ask, right? Is male and female an issue of culture of creation? Right? The question is, did God create us different um, and did it change uh, based on culture uh, or creation. If, what is he talking about here? Because what he's saying here, and notice what he chooses. He chooses all these different aspects, Greek, uh, slave nor free, male nor female. He chooses all these different aspects that basically under the gospel actually doesn't change people's status, right? right? A Greek does not become a Greek anymore. Right. His point isn't that, you know, a man or woman, like their, their plumbing changes or that that you actually are not a female or a male. Right. I mean, his point isn't, you know, when you think of a slave or even a free man. I mean, even in the scriptures, he, you know, Philemon, for example, you know, Philemon doesn't, you know, he doesn't go, oh, Onesimus, yeah, you're a Christian now. So now you don't have to pay back that debt. You know, that's not what those guys said. Right. They say, yeah, praise the Lord, you're a Christian. You still owe me my money. And until you bring him back. Give my money, Christian. You know what I'm saying? So, 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 so people were still in there because we have a different mindset of what slavery is. Um, people were still left into their socioeconomic statuses and things of that sort. He's talking about equality. Okay, just because we are distinct does not make us unequal. That's his point. That's the point of the gospel. What the gospel does, it does not rid us of our distinctiveness. We are still distinct because God created us distinct. That's first, you can look at First Timothy 2. He argues this issue of creation. Uh, and even in Genesis, we are distinct. But his issue was people were treating women as unequal, okay, which is totally not from Jesus. So what does that look like practically? Well, look at the Trinity. His whole point in us being men and women, I want to pr- propose to you, and even in marriage, is that we get an opportunity to model the Trinity. Okay? The Trinity, is Jesus any less than the Father? Is he any less God? No. Is he the Father? No. Does he have different roles? Do they have different roles? Did the Father down across for you? No. Jesus down on the cross for you. The Son did. Okay? His point, and do you see Jesus getting mad at the Father, throwing a spaghetti at him, going, I'm tired of people always thinking you running things. (laughs) 
No. Right? He, everything he does, he says, I do all of this. I do what the Father's told me to do. And he's not tripping. He understands that he's not unequal. He, it says in the Scriptures, Philippians 2, right? He says, he says, I don't even count equality to grasp. I don't, I don't have to grasp the equality of God because I possess it. That's his point in that verse. I'm equal with God. I don't got to try to find my security in that. I know I am. So just as the Trinity models individuals who are totally equal but distinct and have distinct roles for the glorification of the Trinity, in the same way we model that when we model the Trinity in our lives and in our relationships. When we as individuals are married and we, we don't put our wives in the headlock, but we sacrificially love them while they sacrificially submit to us, what we get to do is in our different roles model a, a unified love. Because the issue that God wants to show in a marriage relationship is not indistinctiveness, but unity. He wants to show two different people with different roles united for a purpose. That's the whole point. Because then that reminds people of the Trinity. Oh, Lord. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Why is that a problem? What? And, wait, yeah, I'm just, I don't know your point. Okay, so you're saying because of the argument of silence, because he's not saying, oh, women, here's the men, here's your role now, because here's a women's role, then that makes you feel like he's like dogging women. Okay, don't, 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 don't run up past that one because he gives a reason. Okay, so you got two things going here, family. When you're looking at verses, you have you have occasional letters which are dealing with occasions. So you got people dealing with stuff, just like we deal with stuff. And I write you a specific letter; it's going to be dealing with our stuff. Okay, so you got that, but then you got theology within this occasion. Okay, so he gives you occasion culture stuff, but then he gives you theology behind it. Okay, so the theology is what I want to focus in on because we can't necessarily make sure our doctrine, we don't want our doctrine to come simply from culture, but I want to make sure we understand the theology of it. So we can argue at the bar all we want about why does he say this about the women and that about the women, but what we can't argue is the reason why he says it. You see the difference? We can't argue that the reason why he says it is he brings up Genesis. He says because God created man this way and he created woman this way. Okay, so we can, we can, now we can talk about how that fleshes out, but what we do see is we see he's saying, hey, I created man for a specific reason, I created woman for a specific reason, let's make sure that we understand that this whole piece is an issue of creation. So, so now, so my point in that, not trying to like, like weasel out, I just want to make sure we don't get caught in the rabbit trails. Because what we do know is the Bible is just saying, hey, He's called men to sacrificially lead, right? And if we're now, now our issue when I talk about, when I go to pregnancy aid and teach, we're foul leaders. 
So, so men not marrying their wives, um, you know, sleeping around, not leading, uh, leading out of militia, you know. Yeah, so, we, so then it makes women go, well, I want, you, I want to follow you. Because the whole point for Jesus is that you're leading, filled with the Holy Spirit, following God. And if you're doing that, then the woman would want to follow you. Because <laughs> now you're going to be sacrificially loved. And that, don't you want that? Like if I'm going to sacrificially lay my life down for you every day, I think you might want that. Because that means you're going to get the good stuff, right? You know what I'm saying? Like I get the scraps of the house, you know, Sarah feed the kids and they all eating and she's like, oh, oh, that's yours. I'm like, okay. Sacrificially love. Just kidding, baby. So, uh, um, man, uh, this is going to be interesting. So let me, um, so my, my point in that family is, my point in this is that he is saying, guys, he's saying that with the cross, what has happened, he's trying to talk to these Jewish people in a nutshell, and he's saying, guys, now is the time where all of us, he's saying this always should have been, but let's be extremely clear here that we are distinct and we are still celebrating each other for their differences, but those differences does not make us unequal or better. And now there should be unity. And his goal, his goal for the people of God is under the cross is that we are now one. Right? And, and the thing is, we've got to figure out how to do that because we can mess it all. We, we start tripping. You know, people come to Mac Ave and you get white folks who think, oh, so I'm going to be down. And then they want to, like, let their hair get nappy and get a fro or something. You ain't got to do all that. You know what I'm saying? You know, they got brothers trying to, like, hey, like, be kind to the white people. You know, they want to have, like, smoked salmon. You know what? You ain't got to wing. You know what I'm saying? Be who you are. If you want to, I'm just keeping it real. You know what I'm saying? If you want to cook greens and that group, cook greens. You know? And we need to celebrate our culture, celebrate who we are, and do it united, and be one together, and not see each other as a little less because you got a little more education, or you, you know, and all these other things that we, we jockey for position in the body of Christ. And God is going, that's totally demonic. No one in here should be jockeying for position. Um, so he said, so that's what all this is about. The law is foul. It is, uh, you know, it's invalid. He's saying, guys, look, you, you, you're, you're still babies, you know, and I, I love that, right? Because I love how he, he calls these grown men boys. That's the whole point there. He's saying, yeah, you know, and we, we know that. We know a lot of 40-year-old and 35-year-old boys, Right? And he's saying, he's saying you know, you, but in faith, you become a man. That's the whole point. You get it, when you get to 1 Corinthians 13, when you see that, you can, you can write that down in your, in your address. I mean, when you talk about 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, you know when I was a boy, I did, I did childish things, but now I put childish things behind me. It's just, the Bible, Jesus, I mean, you see these guys throughout the epistles talking a lot about this sense of maturity. You know, the maturity, that at some point, uh, you need to grow up. So he's telling these guys, grow up. Um, so he goes on. Let me get here real quick. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let me say one thing. I'm not going to do much justice on here. It's 1233. Um, I want to make one major point. I just want to be wise here. Do you think I should make this point or should we just pause? Sorry. <laughs> Depression. Make you, make you guys all look like bad Christians. Should I keep going to read the scriptures or y'all want to stop? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put y'all in that position. That ain't, that ain't even cool. I'm sorry. What, 
Let me just say this real quick. Okay, one, so verses 1 through, here's what I'm going to do, family. Verses 1 through 7, okay? He says, I'm just going to fly through this. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. You see that? When we were children, we were slaves. And he says in verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights as sons. As freed sons, let me explain in a moment. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and since you are a son, God has made you an heir. My point in this, this whole passage here is about this, guys. He says, uh, he brings it back again. Remember, uh, Roman people, so he, remember he talked about close yourselves um, with Jesus. What they would do is they literally... Um, a person, you know, you knew you were a man in this culture. Um, it was all based on the dad. And so the dad, you it would grow you up. Uh, you would have your pedagogue and then, and then you would, uh, then he would grow you up. And as you, as you, as you experienced, he experienced maturity and he saw that you were doing what you were called to do as a man. You were doing the things. Then what basically he would, he would confirm to you. He would say, okay, son, you're a man now. And that would give you the wings to fly. And then what, he would, what they would do is they would literally declothe you uh, and then put clothes on you as a man. Which is, by the way, I, I just think we in America, we don't, we don't have no, like, we don't know how, we have these weird ways of knowing we're a man, you know. Stupid stuff, how you drink and, you know, and how many girls you can sleep with is just stupid. Um, we need to figure out a way to, in a godly fashion, remind our men that they're men um, as, we, as we grow our kids. But, um... So they, would, so they would do that. So you, you look at this verse here. He's, he's, he's telling these guys again. He's saying, okay, so you have this sense of, of, being, of being, having this principle, right? You have this, this owner, and you're kind of a slave until you become this man, until you become free. And I thought of it like, that's what it is. We see God like this. And God knows we see him like this, that we have this messed up view of the Lord. And he's saying, how do you see the Lord? Do you see him like a principle? You see what he's doing? He's making this, this juxtaposition. He said, do you see me like a principal? Do you see me like a prison guard, like a warden, Eric? He's saying, do you see me like a, 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 um, an employer who, you know, you say, okay, what do you want me to do? Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just give me the job description and let me fulfill it. He says, is that how you see me? And you just do it without any heart? And then you go in and you wonder, is it good enough? And if it's not, there's going to be drama to pay. And if it is, then you get a pat on the back. He's like, is that how you see me? He's like, or do you just see me like daddy? Am I daddy? Do you just want to bring something to me and tell me, oh, look what I did because you want to be obedient or because you love me? I, I, I think about my kids. Do you think my kids have to earn my love? All they have to do is be Joel and Connor and be little Eli. And we walk around and we're thinking that God is sitting around and he's waiting just to tap you and zap you. And he's saying, all I want you to do is just run to me and just realize I'm daddy. And he says, when you realize I'm daddy, actually that's when you become mature. 
We have it the other way around. We think we were mature when we can pay the bills. He says you're mature when you can rest in my arms. When you can know he's daddy. Continue on. It seems that the Bible teaches that true love, true, true obedience comes from the love of the Father and the health of a relationship. That's what Jesus models to us. He says, because I love the Father, I do what he tells me. Because I'm in communion with him. Do you see that? Continue on, please. Love does not come out of obedience. The Bible is trying to help us understand. Our, our dear Lord is saying, obedience does not drive the passionate love that the Lord desires from us. Man, the Lord wants us to get this grace thing, family. He wants us to understand the gospel. Love leads to obedience, and relationships live out of love. That's his whole point here. He's saying we're just boys, we're just little girls, until we understand that there's nothing you can do but it's by simply sitting with the Lord. I think about my, my sons, and... They come up to me, and I just marvel. He'll come up and be like, Daddy, I didn't pee-pee in my underwear, you know. And one kid, you know, like the other day, just walked up to me, and they were so excited, knocked on the door, and they had this huge stick. And they're like, Daddy, look, we beat it, and we kicked it, and we grabbed it, and we, we got the stick. And they ripped it off a good tree, and Sarah was upset. But, but I thought, that's good stuff, man. You ripped that branch off that tree, you know. And they... And you guys all know, you have kids, you experience that. Well, well, it's not because they want to gain brownie points. I just think they want to please daddy out of love. Because they know I love them. And they just want to please. And it seems like that's the position that the father has for us. He's saying, I want you to please me. But because you are so excited to demonstrate it out of love. Because you know how much I love you. You just want to say, wow, look what I, look what I did. This really deeply in my own heart is ministering to me. Um, continue on, please. Here's a question. As we read this, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and since you have a son, God has made you also an heir. Here's a big question. Do you read the Bible trying to figure out what you should do, or do you read the Bible to understand what God has done? That summarizes what he's saying in these texts here. He's saying, guys, I did it all. And you shouldn't be trying to read the scriptures to get smarter and to say, oh, look at all, look at how I can show God who I am and how I do what I do. Versus saying, wow, I just want to, I just want to relish in the beauty of what you have done for me, Daddy. Daddy. That's why he says that, Abba Father. He's telling these religious, staunch people, will you just call me Daddy? Quit being boys holding on to the one thing you think you do well, and will you just rest? I would like to have this one last song, and uh, then we're going to just head right out. Uh, while we're doing this song, guys, we're going to take communion. Guys, I want us to just wrestle with that reality. Now, if you're new here, here's what we're doing. Uh, we're going to take communion. If you are... Um, if you love Jesus, we want you to participate in this time. We're going to have the, the wine 
uh, in the bread here, and it symbolizes um, 